Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> Welcome back, Foibles listeners. Today we have another Hollywood star. Fabulous Hollywood star. This subject was brought to our attention and we were inspired by Andrew and Cynthia, our beloved listeners, who uh, really love Barbara Stanwyck. Reminding us how much we love Barbara Stanwyck. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Barbara Stanwyck Babs, as she was known to her friends. So we're going to tell you a little bit about her life and talk about movies and recommend some movies to you. If you have not seen Barbara Stanwyck, you will be doing yourself a favor. This woman had a 64-year career in, in show business. She started when she was 15 and worked almost up till the end, almost. That's pretty unbelievable. That's incredible. Gotta be one of the longest ones. Yeah. Anyway, she was born in 1907 and she died in 1990 and her birth name was actually Ruby Stevens. That's not a bad Which is a great name. name. I don't yeah. understand why that, why she didn't use that or why they actually probably didn't let her use it or want her to use it at the studios. I think that they thought it kind of sounded low rent. Common. Yeah, Ruby. I don't know. In those days... I guess they just wanted something a little more high-toned, and they felt that that Barbara Stanwyck... It was a classy name. It was a classy name, yes, exactly. So she went with it. But she did start out her life in New York, and she was the youngest of five kids. And the family at first was really stable. They had the first three kids, the parents, and things went along okay. The dad, like, it seems like a lot of dads in those days was kind of volatile, you know, might be a a drinker, you know, didn't always bring the money home, but they got along okay. So that was uh, the first three daughters that were born. And then there was a long gap, like about 15 years or so between those three children and, and the birth of Barbara's brother, whose name was Byron after their father. Their father's name was Byron. And so when young Byron was born, I don't know if he was a surprise. I guess we can't say, right? But he was born. And then shortly after that, Ruby was born about a year or two later. And (laughs) she was the last kid, probably a surprise, we would imagine, right near the end. Her mother was in her 40s. So, I mean, that was kind of late. That is still late. Still late, exactly. They got along okay. But then when poor little Ruby was only four, her mother fell off of a streetcar. Oh, no. And was dragged away, and then she died of the complications of her injuries. Ah. Unbelievable. So now the mother is absent, and Ruby's so young. But she is old enough to remember having a mother, you know. And so therein lays an abandonment, you know, even though it was uh, involuntary abandonment. And then shortly after that, her dad goes to find work when they were digging the Panama Canal at this time. Oh, interesting. So he went to try to get work digging on the Panama Canal, and they never saw him again. Whoa. I know. He was gone. Now, luckily for Ruby and for Bert, or for Byron, who became called Bert, he went by Bert, he, uh, they were very young children, obviously, so they had three grown sisters who were married and or the eldest sister, Mildred, was working as a, in showbiz. Mm. But they weren't wealthy. And I don't know, you know, who knows how these things work out, but they're kind of passed around. So they were kind of taken care of. And then they also went into orphanages mm. and kind of 
maybe slept rough a little bit uh, when they got a little older. So there was never a sense of security, of being safe. Those kids, they were running the streets, trying to find bottles to get money and, you know, any any little thing a child could do to make money, they were trying to, to make do. And so ultimately, Ruby's sister, Mildred, who was working uh, as a showgirl on Broadway and also touring, so this was not a high-paid job. This is not like she was a star or anything. But she, as much as she could, she took Ruby, and Ruby would hang out in the theater backstage and in the dressing rooms. And so at a very early age, she got to know showbiz and got comfortable in that world and so forth. And she adored her sister just adored her and really looked up to her. So that probably also prompted her to want to go into show business as well. So at 15, she got her first job dancing in cabarets, being a course line girl, and she never had a lesson. So she just kind of picked it up, dancing, singing. She did all that stuff and she just picked it up, acting. She added that to her repertoire again, just naturally talented and imitative. And so she just picked it up from people. And she met a lot of people who were, including her sister, obviously, who would teach her and give her tips. And so she met, she really pulled herself up by her bootstraps. You know, in the meantime, Bert was trying to get along any way he could. He wasn't talented for showbiz like she was. But she and Bert, I mean, they had really been each other's support. And he really had, as much as he could for such a young kid, he was older, he really did look out for her. He, lo- you know, they really loved each other and they were very bonded for mm-hmm for a lot of their their life. So anyway, she was doing a lot of that kind of work and it's interesting because at that level at that time she ran into a lot of future stars that be her contemporaries as stars in Hollywood, one of which was Faye Ray. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and for people who don't remember Faye Ray or not, you know, up on the old movie stuff as much, Faye Ray was the actress who played the woman that King Kong in the original King Kong movie was after. It was fascinated by her. And so she was the one who was screaming. And I mean, she seems to really be known for that, but she did a lot of other movies. She did a lot of TV. She was on Perry Mason, the original Perry Mason TV series, a bunch of times. And every time we'd be watching it, Zoe and I would be sitting there and I'd go, that's Faye Ray! That's Faye Ray! (laughs) So it'd go, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Good to know. Thanks. I will say, though, we did watch um, King Kong semi-recently, and I really enjoyed it. So, Oh, it's a, yeah, yeah. Recomm- a, recomm- a recommend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a really a good one. Right, and then she also uh, met Joan Crawford, because mm. Joan Crawford was up and coming. And some of the stories that I read, I mean, it's well known that Joan Crawford really slept her way through. But, I mean, Joan Crawford was even poorer and more abused than, than Ruby Stevens ever was. I mean, Joan Crawford... As, as rough a personality as she could be in certain instances, like not being a good mother, uh, she, she really had it tough. And she managed to make it in a world where everything was against her in terms of um, the hierarchy yeah. and keeping her... Class. Yeah. Sex. Cl- class. Everything. Yeah. And no education. Again, just like Ruby. Ruby never went to high school. She only had a few years of actual school schooling 
But, you know, she got out there and like, as I really should have said, is at first, the first jobs she got were like clerical jobs. Like when she was 14, she got a clerical job. And so by the time she was 15, she knew she hated that. And because her sister was in showbiz, she went into it. And so she just bounced around and did a bunch of different things for a little while. And she met these girls and she became financially independent. And they like would room together. And she and Faye Ray were very, very tight. Hmm. Very, very good friends. And another one was Mae Clark. Now, Mae Clark is one of the, she, if you've ever seen Public Enemy with James Cagney, uh, there's a very famous scene where he smashes a grapefruit in a girl's, in the woman's face. That's Mae Clark. And Mae Clark had a, a pretty good career for a little while, but she's really known for that particular role. So Barbara is, you know, going around and she also learned. Here's a little story that I believe May Clark told, is that basically they would go out and they would date men and they would get free meals. What Barbara told May Clark is then you like walk around and you like walk past a department store and if you need a coat, you go, you just moon over oh, a I'm coat cold. and oh. say, oh, I'm cold. Oh, wasn't that a great coat? I love that coat. So blah, blah, blah. And so the man then, it's kind of signaled that the man is expected to buy it for you and then you sleep with him. Right. And that's the that's kind of the quid pro quo of that situation where <laughs> Clark didn't quite get that. She was a little bit younger than than Barb. Barbara's like fifteen, and May Clark is like fourteen. I mean, they're really young, Jeez. or she's sixteen and you know really young. And so May does that, but she doesn't realize the last step, and she refuses to sleep with him. And so he takes the coat back, and <laughs> Barbara said she said that Barbara looked at her and said, "You gotta give to get." <laughs> So she did do that, and we kind of know that she had to do that because she was never able to have children because uh, when she was 15, she had one of those backstreet abortions mm. that you know destroyed her ability to have children. It's tawdry, but it's real, you know, and you can't blame anybody for having to survive. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I'm, I'm definitely being struck in this episode in particular by the really hard backgrounds that so many superstars came from. That's true. It's very interesting. Yeah. Of the time, there there was a lot, I guess, a lot more mobility because of Hollywood and stardom and celebrity. It was, if you were willing to give to get in a certain way. But as Barbara, or as Ruby, began to gain some success, she ended up becoming a Ziegfeld girl, which was a really big funnel for future stars. Ziegfeld would pull out these really beautiful women and one not so beautiful woman, which is Fanny Bryce, but she was hilariously funny. So she was the funny woman. I mean, she wasn't, I mean, come on. We're just talking about standards of the day and sure. you know, all that. But they were just these very, very beautiful women with these gorgeous legs. And, and that was actually where, um, I'm doing a lot of digressing, but it's so interesting, this period. Uh, Marion Davies, who was the mistress of William Randolph Hearst. It's all a very notorious story at the time. Very interesting. He was, I don't know, I forget how old, but like 35 years older than Hearst. She was 16, and he was in his 40s or something. And he came every day, and he watched Ziegfeld Follies and saw her. And Yeah, give us a little background on Ziegfeld and like what the shows were. Oh, oh, sorry. The Ziegfeld Follies were basically a big, gigantic extravaganza of song and music and showgirls. Basically, these Las Vegas shows with the showgirls mm. really are patterned on the Ziegfeld things. They had okay. singing, dancing, musical numbers. There were some men in it who were like also singers and would dance with the, with the ladies, but it was all about those showgirls, really. And he would have comedy. 
And you had like a big theater in Hollywood that people would go to? No, or? no, this was in Broadway. Broadway. Yeah. Got it. There's lots of theaters in Broadway. Right. Yeah. I don't know if he had, I think he probably had a home theater that he went to. I'm not a real, like, I haven't done research on Ziegfeld. It's just, you see it all the time. And he was a real showman and really had an eye for beauty uh, and what was going to be really popular. And so Marion Davies, uh, who ended up being the mistress, lifelong mistress of William Randolph Hearst, who was a newspaper magnate. And he just owned all kinds of newspapers across the country. He just became an absolute sort of czar of, of media. And he really had a pretty tight hold on the media uh, newspaper for a long time battling with Pulitzer and some others, but he was right up there. So anyway, he ended up marrying a, a chorus girl, and then they had like five kids, and then he ended up hanging out at the Ziegfeld Follies. He sees Marion Davies, who's 16, and her mother was all for it. I mean, this was, sure. was cha-ching, yeah. yeah. I mean, they were, again, super poor. And he ended up bringing her on as his mistress. And apparently they had, I mean, she was his mistress until he died. So she was his mistress, like, for a couple decades. They had built an amazing place called San Simeon, which was a huge, huge palatial mansion and grounds. And it's a infamous in the Hollywood lore. And people went there all the time for parties. And it ended up that, ultimately, they really did create a partnership, a real partnership. It wasn't just like titillation and sex. Uh, there's a story, I'm sorry, I'm digressing, but it's so interesting. There's a story about Marion Davies. Well, first of all, he wanted her to be a Hollywood star. So he brings her out to Hollywood and she was a delight. But there was a point where Hearst was rolling into bankruptcy. His empire was collapsing. I mean, it's sort of like he didn't have a, a bean. He was, which is amazing to have all this stuff and then have no money. And so she took all the gems and jewels that he had given her over the years, and she brought them to him and set them down in front of him and gave them to him so that he could have some money to recover, and he did. And, of course, he never forgot that. So there's a real loyalty and bond between them. So these transactional relationships between men and women weren't always tawdry, weren't always nasty. Sometimes they did develop into something kind of fine. So getting back to the Ziegfeld Follies, Barbara Stanwyck is in the Ziegfeld Follies, and that helps to catapult her and get her known. So the play that made her a star on Broadway is called Burlesque. Playing a tough girl, playing a kind of a liminal kind of character. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Which she was very good at, and of course it was her. And, And again, early days, she probably wasn't the greatest actor, but she was working on it. She knew she was smart. And Billy Wilder said she's like one of the smartest actors he's ever worked with. She's so smart about it. That enabled her to pick up how. And also, she didn't have the kind of ego that she always had to be right. She was always kind of tweaking and looking and trying to improve and was willing to really do that. So that's I think that's the key to her success and her tenacity. She's, she is like a honey badger. Although we consider James Cagney to be the ultimate honey badger. <laughs> the honey badger of Hollywood. He's the, he's the honey badger. He continued to be the honey badger. And if you haven't seen Honey Badger, go on YouTube and see the original Honey Badger with the narration by Randall. <laughs> and then you'll know what we're talking about. Okay, so we're not going to go play by play and what she did and that whole early career it would take forever. And it's you can read about it. There's, there's biographies of her. But she began to 
have more and more success on Broadway, getting to be starring in plays and so forth. And during that period, she met Frank Fay. Now, this is a guy I had never heard of in my life. And he was a comic. And he's credited by a lot of people, of, if not inventing stand-up comedy, of being the greatest exemplar of, it, of the beginnings of it. He was a huge success. He basically would come out, he kind of like tell stories and things like that, that kind of stand-up comedy. Not so much like the one-liners and the zingers that stand-up became later. And it was his manner, apparently, and the way he would improvise. And he'd come out, it would never be the same, and it was apparently very witty. Hmm. And you can see him on YouTube. The sound quality's not that great. And I watched it and I thought, it just doesn't hold up. And it didn't hold up in Hollywood either. He was a big hit on Broadway. He was huge, huge on Broadway. So he and Barbara met, or I mean, I should say Ruby, because she's still Ruby. She isn't, doesn't become Barbara until she actually gets to Hollywood. So they meet, and at the time they met, she was kind of hung up on a guy named Rex Cherryman. Ooh. Who was a... a now there's a porn name. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, she was hung up on him big time and really in love with him, but I guess he was married and he's older and, but then they ended up deciding that they were into each other and he had to go to Europe and then they were going to kind of get together and he died in Europe. Oh no. (laughs) He wasn't that old. He wasn't that old by our lights, but he was definitely probably twice her age, maybe, maybe not quite that. And, and so that was just devastating. And then she had never liked Frank Fay at all. But for some reason, I, I don't know if he, maybe he was there for her and he was an older man and he really knew what uh, he was doing in terms of business and Broadway. And, and he, I think he really helped sculpt her and mold her. And, you know, and he was a very strong personality, I guess is kind of what I want to say. He's 18 years older than she was. So they got married in 1928. So she's 21. So, so she's kind of pretty well experienced given that she started in showbiz when she was 15. So she's been in showbiz like six years. Right. But, you know, he's been around for a really long time. He's 18 years older than her. And he's a big, big star. I mean, he could pack the theater. In fact, comedians that, again, I don't know about your generation, but that were staples of my generation, like Milton Berle, George Burns, even James Cagney, who was not really a comedian, but he was a dancer and singer on Broadway, which a lot of people don't really even know, would just go and watch him over and over, watch him from behind the scenes. Study him. Study him because he just, he had, I think, he had a metrosexual kind of ambiguous sexuality. In fact, there were a lot of hints or rumors that he maybe he was gay because you can see that. There's that frothy, it's kind of like a champagne bubble of lightness to his patter and so forth. A little bit of a dandy. Yeah, like a dandy. His speech didn't have that low-tone kind of masculinity. It had that sort of what we code a little bit as gay. It wasn't really a lisp, but it was a... A lilt. A lilt, yeah, in a way to his his speech. And, And also his gestures. You know, he would gesture with his hand and his wrist a little bit. Not a lot, just a little bit. 
that it could code as gay. Nobody knows whether he really is or not. He was married to a couple women, but of course that doesn't necessarily... That didn't mean a lot in the day. Yeah, Yeah, especially. He kind of had to. But I think what it is is he was accepted as straight, which made him able to be on Broadway. And so he was able to bring these qualities into his act, which made him different, which made it really work. And so these, all these straight guys who were comedians, they were watching him and they were imitating him. And they were, it's funny because if you watch Frank Fay and then you watch these like George Burns with his cigar and how he gestures, Milton Berle for sure. And then even James Cagney, when you look at his, just his body language, you, re, you can kind of see the influence of Frank Fay. Huh. It isn't something like you would just necessarily just pick it up. It's because they have actually said they were trying to imitate Frank Fay or trying to use what they were seeing and, and what they thought was so fantastic about his performances. But he was also abrasive. He was, who knows how much he was drinking at the time, but he later became definitely a very bad alcoholic. So he probably was drinking, but he was also strong and he was there for Ruby and she fell in love with him or actually, I think she said she didn't really fall in love with him. She was in love with Rex Cherryman, but she felt, she felt attracted to that stability because remember she'd had no family life and nobody's sick by her ever. So it's like, it was the father figure kind of thing and he knew a lot. And so he took it on himself to mold her and help train her. And then when she was about 21, they got married. What happened with their marriage, it's very interesting because Ruby was very strong, as we know, very strong, very determined. She could make her own decisions. And it's like she made a decision. I am going to stick with Frank. This is going to be a family. This is not going to end. And I will do whatever he says. He is... My Lord and Master. My Lord and Master. And she did. And she would stand by him and with him against all odds when people criticize him. And, and when people wanted to call her Barbara Stanwyck, she says, no, I'm Mrs. Frank Fay. Now, think back to a certain movie we saw. Do you know what I'm to talking about? To a certain series of movies that we did a podcast on. Yes, yes. Called, called The Star is Born. This is Mrs. Norman Maine during Broadway and in Hollywood when she was becoming very famous and eclipsed him because he did not make it in Hollywood at all. He really, really failed. It's just whatever it was he had didn't work on film. It just didn't. It was very odd. So they would go back to Broadway and they would tour together and he would be the star and she would be the sidekick. And she was always putting herself in the role of being a sidekick, being a support. And then he started getting a lot of criticism for that. Hmm. Because she's obviously the one at the time who's in Ascendant. I won't say she was more talented, uh, but she was more to the taste of the time for sure and very talented. And the critics saw this. And so she would always stand up for Frank. And she would always, and I'm Mrs. Frank Fay. And she would say that all the time. And the movie, the 1937 movie, A Star is Born, which is the original one, with Janet Gaynor and Frederick March, see our podcast, go into it supposedly was inspired by their relationship. Now, the generosity of Norman Maine in that movie toward his wife and wanting to build her up was not Frank Fay, but the alcoholism, the crazy behavior, the abrasiveness, and ultimately the knocking around 
physical mm. knocking around were. And her stubbornness in sticking with him and hiding it and doing everything. And it wasn't really until they adopted a, a little boy. By this time, she's Barbara Stanwyck, but the little boy's name was Byron Fay. Well, I'm sorry, no, I'm wrong. His name was Dion Fay. D-I, I don't know where I got the Byron from. Sorry, that's the brother. Uh, D- D-I-O-N, Dion Fay. And it's like, oh my God, what do you, <laughs> I'm telling you, when he could start talking, he went to school, he says, please, I want to be called Anthony. <laughs> and oh, so wow. they changed his name to Anthony Dion Fay, just to get out of that, that bullying. Uh, oh, geez. Yeah, I know. And bullying over this, this name that Fancy wasn't, name. it wasn't masculine enough, right? So he became known as Tony. And so she adopted him, and Faye just didn't want to adopt the child. He didn't want the child. Uh, he was getting into huge alcoholism. The stuff like she found lit cigarette butts he, he dropped on the floor in the nursery where Yikes. the child was. And yeah, he just did a lot of, a lot of crazy stuff, driving with insanity. She kept covering for him until he actually started beating her. And then he started to get physical with the little boy. And this kid was little. And so she finally, finally cut the cord. I think she would have taken it more for, for herself. But even though she wasn't a great mom, she was a very a decent human being. And she did protect Tony from him. Ultimately, she, she fought and fought and fought to keep him away from Frank Fay. And even though Faye had never wanted to adopt this child... He started demanding custody and visitation and this kind of stuff to get to her. Yeah. Because he wanted her to come back to him. And she, she'd finally gotten to the point where, okay, I've done that enough. And so once she decided, again, Barbara could make her decisions and she stuck to him. She was very strong in that way. She decided, that's it. I'm done. I won't even, the back and forths when Tony was going to be on a visit to him. And this is, the kid was like five. Yeah, really young. He was going to kidnap him and take him to Mexico and then, you know, force her to blah, blah, blah. And luckily Frank's chauffeur was loyal to her or at least didn't like this setup and warned her. So he didn't get his mitts on the kid and... It was really, really... Jeez, that's intense. It's very intense. She had a very dramatic, a lot of dramatic shit going on. Excuse me. And in the meantime, her brother had moved to Hollywood. That's Byron. And Byron, uh, they called him Bert. Bert. And his name was Bert Stevens. And she's Barbara Stanwyck. And so he would like babysit. He lived with her for a while and helped take care of Tony. But he couldn't live with her. Because one of the things that, that was an issue for her is her... I think her abandonment issues and her uh, the lack of stability. So she tried to create stability by being controlling. And so he met a woman that he was in love with and she didn't like it. And she didn't want him to see her and she was trying to interfere. And he's just like, look, I'm a grown man. I can do what I want, you know, or she didn't like it if he drank and because it triggered stuff for her. But sure. he's like, you know, I can drink if I want to. Right. You know? And he wasn't an alcoholic and he wasn't, doing anything terrible right right so he had to move away and so she drove him away even though she loved him so much and she needed him but she couldn't the way she tried to hang on was stifling for her that's too bad i know and she did that with her son too uh apparently uh you know she raised him and then once he went into the uh, military when he was 18 and then he just really never saw her again wow that's rough 
so she was like supportive, like financially in certain ways, but then not. But then she kind of would use it to try to control him. And she was never satisfied. His grades were never good enough. He wasn't good at schoolwork. He didn't like it. And so there wasn't any ability to understand and nurture. It was, you're not living up. You're not doing it. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. She sent him to military school a couple of times. That was not his personality. So that was rough. So she had a lot of, she was a lot of rough personal relationships. The other relationship that I thought was really fascinating is when she got to Hollywood, she and Mae Clark got to Hollywood around the same time. And um, Ruby, and they had been like, just like twins, like bonded. She got there and apparently Frank didn't like Mae Clark. And the belief is that he told Barbara at this time, by now Barbara, to stay away from her. You can't be friends with her. May kept trying to reach out, and Barbara's like, I don't have time. I'm too busy. Mm-hmm. And it was that was really sad. What what happened? You know, just all of a sudden, you're, you're dead to me. And it's probably because, everybody believes, because she did everything that Frank told her to do. Some things I've read said, well, she didn't want to be connected to Ruby Stevens anymore. It was a new life. But that's not true, because she stayed really good friends with Joan Crawford. And Joan Crawford certainly knew her as Ruby Stevens. So I don't think that was it. I think it was just maybe Frank was jealous of their closeness and wanted to pull it apart. But she had great, great relationships with most of her directors and her co-stars. So when it came to work, she was... A consummate Consummate, consummate. And it's funny because somebody once said to her, there are only two things that matter to Barbara Stanwyck, and they're both work. <laughs> I mean, she she worked on herself. She worked at the job. She did whatever was required, no matter how painful. She did not complain. Although sometimes maybe she should have because she put herself in physical danger. And like she got thrown off a horse one time and she got right back up and, and insisted that she get on and that she keep working. And then she got permanent damage to her back rather than going, hey, you know, I need to take a day or two off. But she wouldn't do that if she could if she could walk through the rest of her career she was constantly in terrible pain and had to like wear uh, one point a, a special corset or gusset or something to keep her spine immobile and to support her spine because she was in so much pain i mean that's yikes yeah another story about her work is that if they were still shooting at the end of the day i forget which film it was in but it's one where she had to wear a really terrible like really heavy heavy costume really hot and it was hot there. And again, she wouldn't complain or demand drinks of water. So she would like get dehydrated. I mean, it's almost kind of ridiculous. But at the end of the day, and she did this on every film, but say, okay, we don't need you. We're done with you. for the. We'll just keep shooting the rest of these scenes and finish up. And we don't need you for the rest of the day. You can go home. So what she'd do, she'd go to her trailer or her dressing room and just sit there in her costume, in her makeup, in case they said, that ah, we need you. And she'd be there. Wow. And, you know, and it did happen. So, of course, she was beloved by directors because she was so willing and malleable in that way. Yet she was also strong about the 
interpretation of her characters and how that should be played and if things were stupid or didn't work or needed to be improved. And so she would get into fights about that. But not all, but a lot of the directors who worked with her loved her for that because she did it in the right way, it sounds like. Um, so William Wellman, she did a movie called Night Nurse with him. It was a very early movie, pre-code in the early 30s. And she was co-starred with Clark Gable where he played a bad guy. Oh, okay. And it was before he was famous. Before he became Clark Gable, she was in it with him. And, and they became lifelong friends, very, very close friends. And Billy Wilder loved her. Two of her best movies were with Billy Wilder. And Preston Sturges, another great, great director. Just all of these people just loved her. So I, I feel like that is a, a real testament to her work ethic. I guess maybe she felt, you know, work will never abandon her. Uh, work does abandon people. It has, you know, especially women as they get older. And these directors took the time also to help her and teach her because she was really willing to listen to them and to go with it. In fact, um, one of her, her early directors, Frank Capra, was totally in love with her. This is when she was married to Frank Fay, so there was no hope. And kind of really wanted to get together with her, but it never worked out and he ended up marrying someone else. And But he was deeply in love with her. Mm. And then uh, Preston Sturgis, she said, taught her how to be funny on camera. And then she said that Billy Wilder taught me how to kill on screen, and thank God for that. So she was totally willing to give credit where credit was due to her mentors. Then after she got divorced from Faye, that was so traumatic and so terrible. She wanted to stay unmarried. She was fine with that. And then along came Robert Taylor. And I don't know if people really remember Robert Taylor today, but he he became a big, big star. And Taylor was, in this case, younger than she was. It's sort of like she shifted from being where she was looking for a daddy figure, where she sort of wanted to be the the head of the relationship. Matriarch, yeah. yeah. And she wanted to be the one who would be the mentor, be the teacher, and that would, again, help her stay in control. When Robert Taylor came to the theater, he came from a pretty nice family. He did not come from a rough-and-tumble background. And he was two years younger than she was, which is nothing. But in life experience terms, he was a, a, a little baby, a little toddler, and she was a striding behemoth. Mm-hmm. Because she was a big star at the time. And he came in, and he was, he was kind of pretty. I don't know if, if you've ever seen Camille with Greta Garbo. That's Robert Taylor, who plays Armand. And so he was known as being so beautiful. He got kind of hardened and lined later but when he was young he, he had a pooty little pooty face you know his little cupid kind of okay mouth his face wasn't but his mouth kind of, i don't know there's something about the softness of his face anyway the women again this is like valentino women loved him because he seemed like a non-threatening but very but masculine guy right but men didn't see him as masculine and i think were threatened by how women were so crazy about him so he got the, the valentino what i call the valentino treatment they didn't call him a pink powder puff but they kept indicating that they thought he was gay or sissy or not a man. And the thing about Robert Taylor that's so interesting is he actually was pretty much a quintessential masculine guy, American masculine guy. He loved riding and hunting and fishing and sports, and he was all of that. But they wanted to ignore that and make fun of him because they wanted to bring him down, which yeah. pretty much was terrible. Yeah, it sucks. Poor guy. Anyway, I've got to tell you his real name. Robert Taylor's real name is Spangler Arlington Brule. <laughs> 
That's a good one. That's a good name. I don't know. There's no they way. They wouldn't have been calling him gay if he had that name. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, he comes in and he doesn't know nothing really about Hollywood and even acting. He was a pretty much a novice. Uh, so they met. And of course, Barbara thought he was attractive, but uh, he was really kind of the opposite personality wise. He had a, he had a really supportive family. Was not had not been poor. He was handsome and popular and all of that and fun loving. He was just fun loving. And she had been through hell. And so she just kind of wanted to stay at home. And he was really attracted to her. So he finally got her to start going out with him and hanging out. And they would go dancing. But then, of course, the media hears about it and it's in the papers and she doesn't like that and she just was really reluctant so they dated for three years and i think kind of what happened was she cared for him and she began to fall in love with him and then her kind of controllingness started to come out and he it's just i think they have a very interesting relationship because she mentored him and that was kind of the highlight of their whole relationship is she would go over his lines with him at night for movies she would go over his interpretation she would even go on set and kind of coach him Hmm. and so forth but it got to the point where he began to get his own ideas and decide what he wanted to do and he got to know what he was doing but she wanted to retain that mentor role and he kind of wanted to be free of it yet he loved her and was really, really attracted to her. So there was this tension. So there, I think I think it kind of got passive-aggressive. So he would, like, drop hints about how attractive he thought other women were hmm. and kind of, like, flirt with women. And I don't know whether he actually slept with them or not at this point. But And then that would yank her chain. And, you know, he would want to give... And he would give her jewelry. And she's like, I don't wear jewelry because Frank Fay told her not to wear jewelry. And oh, okay. she was still stuck in her mind. And, uh, you know, so there's, it was kind of complicated. But at the same time, there was a healing aspect to it. Because here's this man. Nice he, person. He was, he was a good person. And, you know, she was a good person. And, and he was decent to Tony. Tony said, yeah, he was always perfectly fine. They never really bonded because Tony was not a sportsman. And was not really into sports and and or fishing and hunting and that kind of stuff. So they didn't like have a, a point of connection. But Taylor was decent to him. You know, made suggestions that were like good for the kid, like supportive and helpful to the kid and that kind of thing. But as time went on, they got married in '39, and they uh, got divorced in 1951. So it was a pretty good long-standing relationship. But during that time, Taylor started having affairs. I think to get out of the controllingness. Mm. And so ultimately, they just had to break up. And then she never married again, but she did have relationships, again, with other younger actors and consistently kind of getting younger over time and where she would mentor them and help them. And then, you know, they they just needed to get out of her grasp, uh, which is kind of sad to say because she was so smart. But when she did have a friend, like female friends that she was willing to stick with, she was tight with them. Like she and Taylor were rather close friends. Zeppo Marx, one of the Marx brothers, hmm. the one who was not the funny one who ended up kind of being a businessman hmm. and his wife. In fact, they were instrumental in getting them together and helping them get married. She and Taylor bought a ranch, a horse breeding ranch for uh, racing horses with the Marxes and with Clark Gable and his wife, Carol Lombard. 
I keep wanting to say Claudette Colbert. Sorry, guys. Because he was in that movie, uh, It Happened One Night, with Claudette Colbert, but Carol Lombard, his wife. And they ran that for several years until they finally decided to sell it. It was very, very popular, and horse racing was really big there. So a lot of very famous people would come and bring their horses and maybe board their horses there and didn't know that. And the thing was, is after she had those accidents with horses and early on she hated, she was scared of horses, she just became a horsewoman. Very interesting. Yeah, as life went on and after Taylor, she ended up going with younger and younger men again because she could mentor them and she felt safe with them. And she was a very attractive woman. So she had a uh, four-year romantic relationship when she was 45 with Robert Wagner. I don't know if people know who he is anymore. He's still alive, actually. He's really, really old. He was 22 and she was 45. He was married to Natalie Wood and he was in a show called Heart to Heart in the, I guess, in the early 80s. So I'm just trying to place him for people. So he's considered super handsome. He's never my type. So that, those were her relationships, pretty much. But work was her, her love. And she was magnificent. She was one of those actors who I think melded the sort of old-timey style with a more modern kind of aesthetic. So she's not really totally modern. She's still kind of stagey. She's still got a largeness. But she manages to root it more in a deeper emotional reality. Like some people you watch now, you're going, oh, that's so stagey. Sometimes it's almost hard to watch. I feel that way. I'm sorry to say, guys, about Betty Davis, particularly early Betty Davis. Yeah. Like of human bondage, that movie. She's very young in that. And she's so strident and jerky and gesticulating and just so, I mean, on stage it would be great. And it's so old timey. I really, really, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, don't hate me, but I hate that performance. I think it's terrible. As she got older, she began to modulate. But we just watched Little Foxes, and it was stagey and theatrical, but it was well-proportioned for the screen. Yeah, she was powerful. and Yeah, and she needed to be, because that was the role. So anyway, that's kind of how I feel about Stanwyck's acting. Should we talk about a couple movies? Yeah, I think so. Now, I've seen more. We did not do, I did not subject Zoe to the entire filmography of Barbara Stanwyck because it's too long. I made her, I, the last time we did that was for our Marlena Dietrich episode, which you should listen to. It's pretty that good. That was 30 plus films. It I took think. us six months to do it. Yeah. And Stanwyck had a much longer career. Yeah. Even more. And so I, I tried to choose, well, we'd already seen the top ones. And then I tried to choose ones that I had seen or that I knew were really either important films, top films, films that we would really enjoy, films that would go on a recommended list. And then there are some that I've seen that you haven't, that some were put on the list and some not. So if you go to our notes, we put in chronological order the movies that we recommend as must-sees. Plus, there were a couple recommended by Cynthia and Andrew, which were good watches. They did not, sorry to say, make our very, very top list, but they are honorable mentions and were very interesting. They were later, a little bit later Stanwyck. Stanwyck maybe into the late 40s, early 50s, and are pretty well-known films. Yeah, where should we start? Well, where do you want to start? Do you want to just start kind of chronological, or do you just want to, do you have some a passion for one that you just need to talk about? We can go chronological. Okay. Well, the first one on our list, anyway... That we did. And again, we don't want to belabor you with too much information and craziness. So 
we'll try to keep this to a uh, reasonable length here because her career was so long. But one that I really love is that one that I talked about, Night Nurse, and it was in, done in 1931. So it's pretty early. It's a very early sound film, too. So you do hear that. You do hear it's kind of old-timey sound that is not the greatest. But it's a great story about Barbara is a nurse. She is the night nurse. And she's supposed to take care of this kid. And the parents are starving the child. And Clark Gable plays a chauffeur who's a bad chauffeur. Oh. He's a bad guy. And he, it's very cool because if you look for images of it, there's a picture of them. And she's the nurse, so she's in white with the nurse outfit. And he's all in black in the chauffeur's uniform. That's fun. It is. It is directed by William Wellman, who was uh, really known as a man's man. But he really respected Barbara for stuff like, apparently, this one point where Gable has to manhandle her or slap her or something. He either slaps her or pushes her against a wall. I don't remember which. But she says, do it. Really do it. Come on. Come on. Hit me. You know? She was exactly the Wellman type of woman. She's tough. No nonsense in a sort of a man's type of way in those days. And if you've seen uh, the movie Wings, most people haven't. But that's the first movie to win an Academy Award for Best Picture. And so Wellman directed that. And that's all about male bonding and uh, love between men. That is, it's just the, the intensity of a male connection especially in a war situation where, you know, there's a World War One movie. Yes, exactly. It's, you know, pretty interesting film. I don't know if it's great anymore. And his filmography is unbelievable. It's so long. But he did a lot of good stuff. But that's a good, good film. She's tough. She's protecting this kid. And I don't know. I like that. What's next on our filmography here? Well, I think chronologically it's not on our list, but we watched one called interns can't take money, which I think deserves an honorable mention. Okay, okay. We can put it on there as an honorable mention. I I enjoyed that. It's definitely not a must-see, but I love it because interns is spelled I-N-T-E-R-N-E-S, not S. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. So it has an interesting spelling, which right away makes me interested in it. Well, and the setup is that the interns in question are doctors in training and... This good good guy doctor ends up, he takes care of a gang leader who's been shot. And then Barbara Stanwyck is trying to track down her child who got taken away from her at some point. Right. And so she needs like money and has to kowtow to this evil guy. She goes to a, a few ca- Catholic orphanages. Yes. And they bring out all these little girls and she has to like look at them and then she's just gonna know. Yeah at the end she just like looks in the eyes of a child and she's like this is my child. You know. It's it's melodramatic for sure. Yeah it's not a super tight film or anything but she is super beautiful in it. Well I have to say that if we're gonna talk about that one I'll give you a few factoids about it. First of all the doctor the intern of the, one of the interns of the title that she ends up falling in love with, of course, we all know that's going to happen, is played by Joel McRae, who's super tall and super handsome. I've always kind of thought Joel McRae was quite attractive. He's handsome, yeah. Yeah. And he's, to my mind, and a lot of people won't feel this way, but to my mind, he's a better Gary Cooper. <laughs> he's a more attractive and engaging Gary Cooper. Okay. Gary, Gary Cooper's not my favorite. Yeah. I mean, he's okay, but... I haven't seen anything I thought he was great in. Yeah, it's true. And then another person in this film who plays, he's another of the interns, is Lloyd Nolan. I got to say, for for those of you who are older, I just thought it was kind of cute. 
Lloyd Nolan ended up playing a doctor on a TV series that I loved called Julia when I was a kid. And that was a, a TV series where Diane Carroll played a nurse to, and he was the doctor in it. And uh, he plays the old kind of avuncular doctor. And that was the first network series that starred a black woman. Mm. So Diane Carroll was her series. And we, we loved that show when yes. I was a kid. Anyway, so I just thought that when I saw him, I'm like, oh, that's Lloyd Nolan. He played the doctor in Julia. The other thing is, is that this became the Dr. Kildare series. So there was a series of films yeah. with Do- starring Dr. Kildare. Not oh. all, not that they all starred Joel McRae, but... And then, FYI for you, when uh, TV came in, they had a TV series starring Dr. Kildare. Wow, okay. Calling Dr. Kildare, starring Richard Chamberlain. Huh. Yeah, I had no idea it turned into a franchise yeah so anyway that was that's a good call it had some really great kind of surreal expressionistic camera work and sets yeah where the hospital just it was like a suggestion of a hospital yeah it definitely has some real merit yeah i think it had some merit to it that was in 1937 but before that, I have three from the early 30s pre-code oh, okay. with her. 1932, The Bitter Tea of General Yen. That one left quite an impression on me, for sure. And it's complicated because it's problematic. It's set in China, and the lead guy is like a Chinese general. Played by a Swedish actor. Named in Yellowface. Uh, N- Nils Aster. Very beautiful man. Yeah, and so they make him up and like do stuff like pull his eyelids back a bit. It's not over the top. He's the romantic lead of yeah. the movie, and so it's complicated because it's not like supposed to be a caricature. No, he's just really yeah. playing the part. The stereotypes and the caricatures are brought forth in her mind, which is what I think one of the things that makes it sophisticated and that makes me like it. It's uh, she's attracted to him. But she's also fearful of him for the very Orientalist type of reasons that white people put on. Well, and he kidnaps her. Well, like, that's, that's, kidna- that's yeah, a different part of that's the story. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but yet she's deeply sexually attracted to him. And intellectually, I think, attracted to him, too, because he's very smart. They have kind of a battle of wits or a vying of wills going on the whole time. Yeah. There's good repartee and not uh, with wit, but it's very serious. So it comes through in her dreams where she sees him as this threatening Orientalist figure. And also, it's so interesting because he is ruthless. Politically, yeah. Politically ruthless, which is funny because if you really look at it, so are every other country. And any other general who would be in this position would be just like that. Yeah. You know, so it's not because he's Asian that he's that way. But putting it together with the Asian persona at that time, you could misread it. And yeah. say, oh, it's just about because he's Asian, he's like this. It's very interesting because, yeah, it's also Orientalist in the romantic sense where he's both this powerful and ruthless guy. But it's promoting how much integrity he has or how he has this, like, code that he abides by and that. Right, which is exactly like, if you think about it, the code the British say they have. I mean, whether they always adhere to it or not. But in the movies, he is just like Captain Blood, if you will, because he's got a woman there. He's in love with her. You can tell he's attracted to her and he's in love with her. But she's against him because he's kidnapped her. What comes up in this, we're, we're giving some stuff away here. If you want to watch this, come back. But it's a very interesting discussion. There's a young Asian woman who is his mistress, his concubine, whatever. And she is actually working with the, the peop- his enemies 
and passing them information and so forth. And he catches her and he's going to kill her. And then Barbara steps in and says, no, no, she's, she's just a young girl. She promised she won't do it again. I talked to her. Please spare her life. I'll stand surety for her. I'll watch her. Well, Barbara's an innocent. Her character in this is just a total innocent. And so this young woman, she just keeps on doing it. Passing it, she's got a lover who's also on the other side, and he's in the general's employ. And she passes him secret information. General Yentel, oh no, she's going to keep doing it. He knows what the, the deal is. But because she is so insistent that he's wrong, he says, okay, I'll call your bluff. Even knowing that it could be his death. And that's what happens in the movie Captain Blood with Errol Flynn. And that sense of sort of the, the male gallantry. Yeah. And the other part of it is that they get into like sort of, she's drawn to the sensuality. He's an appreciator of poetry and fine food and, and wine yeah. yeah yeah and she's she's a missionary so she's been kind of austere the whole time but barbara stanwick could never really be austere so and I, I think and i think that sensuality is supposed to go to of course the sexuality she's there engaged to be married to a missionary who's kind of a cheery bright kind of simple guy so he's not the one coming up with these intricate interpretations of poetry and having these ethical moral philosophical discussions with her and challenging her in that way and so clearly this missionary was never really right for her anyway yeah and so i guess we'll say again giving it away a bit they of course can't get together at the end because even though it's actually a pro cross-racial love love story story, miscegenation laws and everything right. were, were in place and so they just couldn't have them consummate it but there is a kiss in the movie and i think it's a dream sequence again right right but there is a kiss and that was highly controversial it might yeah. even have been cut out when it went to the southern states i mean just even that which is amazing yeah that's so risky and it's a white guy <laughs> yeah and he's white actually actor. white yeah exactly <laughs> and the end i found okay we're giving away the end is that okay? I, yeah, i'm sorry guys but i feel like it's really I, I kind of liked our interpretation of it, is that in the end, it's sort of like she dresses up in the concubine clothes, the beautiful jeweled robes, and, and does her hair and puts on makeup, and she looks really beautiful, and she comes in, and he's ruined, and she's ruined him, if you will, going, okay, she, I'll stand surety, and then she was totally wrong, and his gallantry or his allowing her to make that decision ruins him. He's got no one left. He's going to be killed or you know, Every, captured. The, pa- the palace is empty and evacuated. Right. And, yeah. He's ruined. And so she comes in and sits next to him and takes his hand and she's weeping and puts her face on his hand and she basically says, I'm yours. I love you. You know, I want to be with you. So she gives the consent. And it's so interesting because the whole time he's been angling or trying to achieve her consent and she's weeping and you almost feel like she's weeping both because as a white woman with these prejudices she can't stop herself from loving an Asian man yet also weeping for her hubris and her ruination of this pretty I mean he's not a nice guy and he's kind of a scary guy but he's kind of a celestial being too Mm -hmm. in terms of his beauty his his wit, his intelligence, all that. And then what he does is... He, he drinks poison. And kills himself. And you're going, well, why couldn't they have been together? I mean, uh, outside of the code, outside of the miscegenation laws, why is that the perfect ending? Because it kind of is. And you see her on the ship 
now she's back in her regular clothes and she's going back and she's been quote unquote rescued. And I just thought it was, for me, it was as if his suicide was the artistic act that gave her not just a story, but gave her life like an arc and a meaning. It gave her something that she will always have that's special. Not just the love, but the entire arc of their relationship in the way she's changed and was brought into not only this other culture, but just this other mind. Basically, like her, her mind and worldview and paradigm have been broken and they'll never be the same again. Right. And she couldn't have, that couldn't have possibly been the case otherwise. Yeah, but if he had lived, her paradigm still could have been broken. But there was a perfection in the way he did it. He didn't slit his wrists or jump out of a window or whatever. He, he, took, he took poison in an elegant cup, in a very elegant way. And he died so beautifully with her there holding his hand. Was it something about the being actually being unconsummated that kept it on this very spiritual level kind of? There, there's probably that, but I, I felt like it was just more that they weren't going to continue together and that he left and that it was the only right thing for a person, as the movie has it, in his culture, with his status, with his personal history, with who he made himself into with his education and the way he melded the two cultures within himself. He wore both Western-style uniforms and beautiful, gorgeous Chinese robes. And so throughout the film, he shows that he has brought them together within himself, but yet there's always going to be a conflict there as well. And so it gave to her, kind of transferred to her the art of his life. So that she became, she now had something within herself that the sorrow, the tragedy, the beauty. I think that's what we were talking about. He, I think he went into the sort of philosophy of like something that's aesthetically perfect isn't unless it has that like emotion or the the tragedy or the flaw. Right. And And also he's always kind of raised above the mundane. And I think that was it. It was his death. He could have lived on. He could have probably escaped. He might have been able to raise an, another army, or he, who knows what he could have done, potentially. But he didn't, because that's what it was. Because of his relationship with her, and he could have taken her with him, and they could have tried to go on, and it could have been all that, and it would have become a mundane struggle. So he chose to make their relationship a work of art by his death. Right. Because it was only by his death that it remained that even if they'd slept together, even if it had been consummated, as long as it was consummated within that sphere that he'd created. So by leaving from this earth in that beautifully tragic way, she now had the relationship in its full beauty and would never lose it. I think that's what we... I think we found our way back to... To what we said. Yeah. But anyway, it is. It's, I'm so glad you had the reaction to it that you did because I remember I saw it, I was in my 20s. I saw it at the repertory theater that I've talked about before. That, And I remember seeing it and just... Now, that was before a lot of awareness mm-hmm. about race and that kind of stuff. And so I looked at it and, you know, and I didn't really... I agree, I didn't see him being treated in a particularly racist manner. So an, a white actor doing the Asian role didn't really impact me when I first saw it. So I was just really into the story and I, I was, I was deeply moved. 
I was deeply moved by it. Despite everything that's incredibly problematic about it, and I couldn't stop thinking about that the whole time. Yeah. Actor, and white actor in yellow face, um, kidnapped, you know, there's... It's they really can... hard to make a convincing yeah. idea of, like, a consensual romance or even, like, any type of equality in those circumstances. Well, see, I would totally... I would disagree with that. Yeah, he did kidnap her. So, initially, yes. No, I just mean, in general, it's really hard yeah. to oh, make yeah. that into yeah. something that ends up feeling I agree with you yes powerful yes. and yeah. that it does have those things and that's why it's such a great movie and that mm-hmm. they are able to find that liminality within those issues and yeah. and make it make it that way because and again it's Barbara Stanwyck's performance and Niels Astor he's great but her performance is so central to this she manages to really be strong while she's conflicted while she's in a position where she is um, stripped of agency in a lot of ways it, yeah absolutely and 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 struggles with that and I find that that that's really what creates that yeah I think that that's pretty key the idea of a woman succeeding in those things while being stripped of agency really is kind of like a central question of women across the centuries yeah. too so I well especially since you're seeing way. the concubine in, in contrast to yeah. her who is asserting her agency by being political mm-hmm but on a one-to-one with the general, she's his concubine. Mm-hmm. She's there to comb his hair and make his tea and kneel at his side and be sexually available whenever he wants it. And it doesn't have anything to do with what she wants. But yet she's asserting it by being political and being a spy, essentially, and by having a lover who she's chosen. So it's an interesting movie for women and from women's roles within the very oppressive hierarchy, yet the women are so central Anyway, that's a recommendation, obviously. That ended up maybe being my favorite. I, I don't think it's of the a new ones, you mean? E- or all of them? All of them. Wow. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily better than Double Indemnity, for example. I don't know. But it's more but interesting. I think it made more, more interesting. of an impression on me. Yeah, yeah. it's more... more yeah, I, I can see what you're saying. So the next one is from 1933. It's next year called Babyface. Now, this is a gritty one. This is one about a woman who uh, basically born into poverty, no mother. The father is a pimp, basically, for her. Let's fit, I mean, it's all hidden, but it's pretty there. And she has a maid, a black woman, and the actor's name is Teresa Harris, who's a a favorite of ours, and you'll hear us mention her, especially in the Val Luton series. Yeah, super beautiful and just a lot of personality that shines through. And a a good actor, and, you know, she doesn't often get, of course, she was frustrated with that. She In Hollywood, she couldn't get many roles other than as a maid plays a maid here but she's given kind of an equality of personality to barbara stanwick's role so she's a person and you get what where she comes from and the two women are very bonded and so because they're bonded as barbara stanwick works her way out of this nasty situation Teresa harris's character maid goes with her and she rises along with her in fact, I think they run away and escape in a train car. <laughs> yeah, hopping a train. Right. And so she just basically sleeps her... Uh, at, that would be Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah, she gets a job in an office building. Mm-hmm. And it, it's very cleverly told. Uh, and the, the, like they're talking about how she's moving up. So she works on a certain floor and she just sleeps her way. And the camera just goes up floor by floor up the building until she gets to the top. And there is a very small role, very a cameo appearance by... John Wayne before he became John Wayne as one of the men that she sleeps with. 
Anyway, I just think it's a great film. I don't know that I need to go into the plot so much. That's pretty much the premise. It's funny. There is a lot of humor in it. Yeah. So that was a good one. Okay, so the last three on the list that I have, these are all very famous films. Prime Time. Do you want to talk about The Lady Eve first? 1941? Directed by Preston Sturgis? Preston Sturges always makes incredible comedies, and this is a a romantic comedy. Barbara plays a classy woman, but she and her father are thieves who go on things like cruise ships and, I don't know, casinos and scam people out of their money. Well, and it's mostly they're gamblers, cheating gamblers. Yeah. But they'll run a con if they can. They're total con artists. It starts out on a cruise and she's there with her father, and then who's the lead actor? Henry Fonda and is most beautiful. He's angelically I think he's almost prettier beautiful. than she is. Well, okay, this is an aside that I've been sitting on, but I think that Barbara's face is very interesting, and yeah. she's beautiful because she's vibrant, glamorous, yeah, and vibrant, and... You know, and very, like, slim and, like... But her face is not a typical... Pretty, yeah. Classic beauty face with upturned nose and everything. It's too strong. I agree. And Henry Fonda at that time was very pretty. And so he's there and he's a rich boy billionaire. And he's come back from the jungles in South America, I think, where he has a passion for snakes. And so he was studying snakes and he's brought the snake back with him and he's a total hick. He's a little bit naive, shall we say. He's incredibly naive. Yeah. (laughs) And that's where we get the symbolism. So she's the Lady Eve and her name is Eve. And he's got the snake. And he's not named Adam, thank God. In the opening scene where she's eating an apple... And she drops the apple on his head as he's coming onto the ship. So there's little little sides like that. But it does not belabor the metaphor at all. No. So basically, it's just one of those things where she tries to take him as a rube. And then uh, she falls in love with him. And he's in love with her. And then he finds out. And then they break up. And then she has to get him back again. Yeah. And it, there, it goes into the whole second part of the movie where she... She finds him again, and then she takes on an entirely different identity in order to, to go to the parties and be involved in infiltrate his life, basically. And she pretends that she's British, I think. Yeah. But he's, again, so naive that she does enough to convince him. And he's like, I don't know. I guess she must be a different person. <laughs> and it, it's pretty funny. And it's funny because and, and Henry Fonda actually shows his chops as a physical comedian. He's constantly, like, tripping over things. Yeah. And in a very funny way. I mean, it's actually funny each time he trips over them. Yeah. I have to say, I never was real big on Henry Fonda because I think I knew him more in his later career. And I, I, I don't know. He just kind of lost his burnish. But these early ones, he's really showing some acting, some physical comedy and they play together so well and they were they actually got along very well as people uh, because they they both were able to kind of subdue and connect at a a deeper level so it didn't have to be really big i appreciate that it's not one of those romantic comedy setups where they're like cats and dogs or like at each other they hate each other you know to begin with because really it starts out with her just being like i'm gonna seduce this guy and she just, she's so powerfully sexual and makes him put an anklet on her ankle and stuff. And it's all very palpable and, yeah. and heavy. Very sensual. Yeah. She actually got a chance to bring that out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and he's there, just like dizzy. <laughs> I know. There's like a scene on the Chez Lounge where she's just running her fingers through his hair. And it is one of the sexiest scenes in cinema <laughs> history. I think it's, it's, it's so fantastic. Yeah. That's, it's a great, great film. It's really top tier. And then after that, um, another one that I really love from the same year, Ball of Fire. 
And basically, her, the name of her character is Sugar Puss O'Shea. <laughs> and it's based on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So she's Snow White, and she's a, I don't know if she's a cabaret dancer or anyway, she's a hoochie-coochie kind of dancer, and maybe a prostitute as well. And she has to go on the lam because her boyfriend is a gangster, and the police are going to be after her to get her to testify. So she ends up finding this big house that have these seven professors who are kind of locked away from the world and they're writing an encyclopedia. An an incredibly comprehensive encyclopedia that's taken them like seven years already or something. And they're all like old men except for Gary Cooper. (laughs) One hot guy. (laughs) And he's good in this one. I liked him in this one. I uh, I think that he worked well. That stiff. He's a very stiff actor, and the stiffness works well. He doesn't know what to do with himself, and he's very proper, and she's very like, Loose. hot and fiery. Yeah, and... she's she's hotsy totsy, showing her leg and being being a little because she wants him to let her stay. And so it's just the fun of her being there, and then being all intelligent, and then the gangsters come in, and so the all the old guys with all of their book learning and intelligence, they actually are able to outwit. And, and come up with uh, clever things to do to subdue the gangsters. And it's, yeah. it's really cute. It's fun. So I, I like that one a great deal. And then the ultimate. Now she had a long career after this. And there were other films, but I think this was when the ultimate is. 1944 Double Indemnity. Do, you want, do we need to say anything about this film? It's so well known. Do, do people even know about it? It's, a, it's noir. It's one of the most classic iconic noirs it's like one of the first more maybe it's maybe it's the first i don't know really directed by billy wilder starring which freaked me out when i saw it uh, opposite barbara is fred mcmurray and i had no idea that he had this career before he was a dad on my three sons <laughs> which i'd ever seen and it was kind of nothing on my three sons and bland and unoffensive and not anything and here he is in double indemnity murdering people so this one is centered around an insurance scam and Stanwyck in it is, of course, married to a very wealthy man, and she is the femme fatale. And I think what's most interesting about her performance is that she really is... She's not as broad as some of the femme fatales end up being in some of these movies, where she's just, like, all sexy, and then all of a sudden she's a, a betrayer. It's more complicated than that. She's very inscrutable for a lot of the movie. And very manipulative in a subtle way. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can see her, but, but it's but it's a subtle way. And there's another anklet in this one after oh, that's Lady right. Eve. There's a very famous anklet. Yeah, she basically maneuvers Fred McMurray into murdering her husband. It's kind of like a postman always rings twice in a way, which is another movie where the femme fatale manipulates her lover into murdering her husband and then things don't go well. We should watch that one. You'll see the parallels. But she's just, she's magnificent. And the only flaw with this movie is the very end because of the code. The code ruined the end. It just shouldn't have been like that. This is the one where the framing device is that he, Fred McMurray, is, is the insurance guy. He's the insurance investigator, I think. And so he, at the end, or at the beginning, is back in his office and he's been fatally shot, which you can tell. He's going in with his recorder and being like, well, here's the st- here's what really happened. And then at the end, dramatically walks out of the office, trailing blood on the walls and drops dead. And that part is very dramatic. So that the very end, I quite like. But the way it resolves with him and Stanwyck is too bad. Yeah, they have to make her be punished in, in the end. 
in a dumb way. Yeah. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense what she does. But up until that point, and I'll give you a tip. And this is what I do, is when a, a movie ending is ruined in the last minute because of the code, and you can see when it happens, because all of a sudden, it's not like the same person anymore. They're like out of character. Yeah. yeah. And they do something really dumb that they wouldn't have done. I just erase that from my brain, and I make up my own ending in my brain. And then I'm really happy. <laughs> it's a powerful instrument. It is. It is. That's what I do. But uh, Double Indemnity is its just a must-see for cinema generally, not just for Barbara. And then, uh, you know, she went on and she had a, a, still a thriving career for a long time until she went into television. We did also watch, for honorable mention, Sorry, Wrong Number, which originally was a radio play. And you can kind of tell that because the whole thing pretty much takes place in her bedroom where she's an invalid. Her husband is Burt Lancaster. Row, row. <laughs> and, and she hears a uh, phone call, accidentally, plotting a murder. And then discovers that... Slowly realizes it's her own. Yes. yes. And so that one starts out great and then kind of doesn't end up following through. It's an honorable mention. It's, you know, Babs, really, a lot of Babs, which is great. And she's working with that. But you can really feel the radio play structure. They didn't really change it much. But it was, you know, the idea that you hear somebody plotting your murder and then you can't get anybody to believe you and you can't really walk. Spooky. So you can't get out. And then your servants that they have in this house were all given the night off and then all that stuff. But I kind of also feel at the end, again, they twisted it so that it abide by the code. The other honorable mention we have here is Witness to a Murder, which she uh, stars in opposite George Sanders who's always kind of a gravelly-voiced sophisticate in his movies. I like this one better than I think Sorry the Wrong Number. I, I think it was just one, tighter as a whole. Yeah. yeah, it was really pretty solid. It was kind of mysterious. I've never seen it. It's interesting. He turns out to be a former Nazi, and she oversees him like basically committing a murder in his apartment, sort of rear window style, and then nobody believes her. And then eventually she plays her hand too much and realizes she's in danger and... It goes from there. Yeah, and it's pretty good because she's, yeah. again, she's yeah. a strong character. She's not, she does get scared. But she acts until the very end again, yeah. which yeah. the climax is a little ridiculous, but she makes reasonable choices. So the whole yeah. time we're just like, thank God, that is what a normal person would do. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and and she's scared, so she does show fear, but she's not like, like she's being paralyzed with fear so that, like, come on, run for gosh sake, yeah. you know? <laughs> So, yeah, she's very sensible, and that makes you like her and really be on her side. Totally. I think she deserves to live. I think the best scene, or for me, this kind of standout scenes in that movie are when the the police have basically been gaslit enough that they think she's crazy, and so they send her to a mental asylum. Yeah. And she's there with these various women, and I do think it's a, a decent commentary on the failings of asylum system. And on, interestingly, because I think uh, filmmakers would do this, they would slip these things in to get them past things that are commentary on society, on sexism, on racism, and that kind of thing. And in this case, one of the inhabitants of the asylum is a black woman, played by Juanita Moore, who was a staple in Hollywood, usually playing maids. But, you know, in this case, she was just a black woman in an asylum and she had a lot to say mm -hmm. about 
what her position there and, and how these mentally ill people were being treated and uh, what to expect. And you really got a sense, even in the very small time she had on screen, they injected some sense of reality about race and about mental illness. It's very good. Lots of gaslighting in this film. So yeah. if you like that, <laughs> watch it and recenter yourself on what gaslighting actually means. <laughs> So, do you have any other uh, comments uh, that you want to make about um, uh, Barbara Stanwyck, her career? Anything you think we've missed out on here? I think this is a doozy. I think we really got into a lot of it. Okay. So, I'll just uh, give a little recap of that she made 84 films. Wow. Aren't you glad you have to watch them all? Yeah. She was featured in more than 200 TV episodes. And we're so movie-oriented. We didn't talk about the TV, but once TV started going in the 50s and 60s, she did a lot of TV. She had two TV shows, the Barbara Stanwyck show, and then she was on The Big Valley, which was a, a Western. She did a lot of Westerns toward the end. Yeah, she was kind of the, the matriarch of the family. family. It didn't seem like she really did much, but she did wear blue eyeshadow <laughs> yeah. on The Big Valley Ranch. <laughs> and it was a historical one, too. So And yeah, so she, was, she did that, and that was you know pretty famous. And then she worked quite a bit till the end doing this and that, but the 30s, 40s and early 50s were really her heyday. She also was did 79 radio shows, so she did quite a bit of radio early on. Wow. And I guess the last thing that we should mention is that she was not one of the people like who had these seven-year contracts with the studio. She remained a freelancer, and so she would sign a contract for like two or three films at a time. But they still managed to screw her by trying to give her substandard films. They were still able to put her on suspension, and what they did was, until it was overturned by a court of law, they would put a, an actor on suspension if they refused too many films that they didn't like. And then they would have to work that off at the end. So if you're suspended for six months, that just uh, put your contract in abeyance and you had still had those six months to work at the end. I cannot believe how unjust these movie they were studios terrible. were. Yeah. yeah. They were really, really terrible. All, all kudos to... Olivia de Havilland, yeah. Betty Davis, and James Cagney, because those were the three people who really brought the suits that, that rocked the, the system. Hooray. All right. Thanks That's for joining it. us. Watch Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand. <laughs> Barbara Stanwyck. Sorry. Well, Barbara Streisand is good, too. I was talking about this to someone last night and did the same thing. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> We did do, we feature Barbara Streisand on our A Star is Born another episode. Link, another link. So that brings it full circle. Except Barbara, Barbara Streisand is actually Barbara, not Barbara. She took the middle A out of her name uh, for numerology purposes because she was told <laughs> that it would be better for her success if she had uh, a different number, number name. Yeah, Barbara. <laughs> That's funny. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.